are we going? And what things should we change? What experiments should we do for next week? Now we're working on how we work, not just the work itself, but also how we work. It's a second powerful feedback loop. And this is what helps to change the trajectory of how the team's working together, the cohesiveness. The Scrum Master of all the things responsible for John and Jake also owned team happiness. And in that retrospective, that's a great place to gauge how happy is my team, because we know happier teams have greater IQ and throughput. everybody to Equality Podcast Season 3. We are happy to have with us today Felipe Engineer. Uh, if you guys are on YouTube watching our stuff, you're probably on YouTube watching Felipe stuff as well. Felipe is the host of the EBFC show on YouTube, a great show that uh, we highly recommend. Also author of Construction Scrum, which we'll talk about today. Uh, Felipe is also the National Lean Construction Director for McCarthy. So Felipe knows his stuff and I love your attitude, Felipe, in sharing your knowledge with other people. That's the kind of people we want to have on the show and have conversations with. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John and Jake. I'm so excited to be on the show. I'm like holding on to my chair so I don't take off. It's been a long time coming, but it's finally happened. We get to talk on an unscripted show. How exciting. Well, we are happy to have you on. Um, You have a great voice for radio, by the way. You'll have to... Teach me how to sound sexy after the yes, show. Yes, John. John, this is the way. If you have Felipe's voice and John's fucking Macy's fall collection he's got on, you'd have a pretty <laughs> classy dude, wouldn't you? This is L.L. Bean, not Macy's. Yeah. Oh, my he's, God. Yeah, he's totally like, oh, he walks in the store, sees the mannequin. That's the outfit for me. <laughs> that whole thing. They're like, hey, sure. Hey, Are you sure hey, you want hey, the hey. scarf, too? He's like, absolutely. I, I said the, the whole scarf. thing. Well, it, it cuts down on my decision-making um, process. You know, I don't have to think about it. So, well, no, Felipe, thanks for joining us today. Uh, why don't we start out with construction scrum? Because I'm a little familiar with scrum. I worked for one company that did scrum uh, poorly, frankly. Um, <laughs> and I'm interested in how it... Uh, I'm sorry for laughing. The, the only reason I'm laughing, John, <laughs> is because a lot of people that, that dabble in the scrum arts... It's usually they have a couple of horror stories, not unlike lean in, you know, in, in our experience, as we know, or operational right. excellence or totally total quality management. All people sometimes will have the unfortunate getting involved with something the wrong way. And they could, it's they like could magic for sure, because the level right? of effort is easily outpaced by the amount of sacrifice. Well, yeah, I, so, I guess that's why uh, you wrote the book, right? I mean, if exactly. everyone was doing it great. We wouldn't need a book on it, right? Well, and then also people in construction said, um, that's an agile, that's a that's software thing. And in, in reality, like it didn't even start with software. It started in the military, which a lot of people don't even realize. When Jeff started crafting the system, he was still a West Point cadet. I mean, so technically it started in school. If you want to be like well, just totally candid. Yeah, let's uh, geek out on that for a little bit. Tell our audience the history of Scrum and a little bit of the background there, and maybe throw a definition out there too, because not everybody's up on the jargon. 
Yeah, let's go with the definition first. So number one, people, if you're thinking it's an acronym, you are need to keep thinking. Keep your mind open. Don't close your mind on me now. Scrum gets its name from a Harvard Business Review article that Jeff read way back in the in the 90s. And the article is written by Nanaka and Takayuchi, which are two researchers. They were studying companies in Japan, and they were looking at at these different organizations, they were really high performing organizations where like everybody and the whole company was aligned. And they said, you know what? We've never, ever, 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 ever seen alignment like this in the real world, except for in sports. And uh, they were fans of the game rugby and in rugby, like in American football, when the ball goes back into play, the team in us in rugby goes into a locked arm formation uh, the two teams oppose each other, actually make contact, physically make contact, and the ball gets put back in play. And that formation is called the scrum or scrum. So when Jeff read the paper and they looked at all these things that are making high-performing teams, he said, that's what I'm going to call my system that I've been developing. And so the system comes out in about 1995 at the OOPSLA conference, O-O-P-L-S-A. Man, we're going super nerdy on you now, John. And we didn't even prepare. Jake's like... Is he going to be able to talk? Yes, Jake. I, I is... honestly thought it was Roman Emperor Alexander Scrum. So I'm yeah. interested to hear. <laughs> totally not, not. Totally not. Yeah. Jeff does a, quite a bit of research. Even to this day, he reads like voraciously, constantly. And Scrum has been evolving since the 90s. Coincidentally, the Lean Construction Institute uh, and a, a group of people that started that, um, Glenn Ballard and... Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me take another hit of my coffee and his co-creator. And I'm just, his name's escaping me right now, uh, created the last planner system, same decade. And they borrowed a little bit of last planners borrowed from the scrum framework. Anyway, scrum and it's in its simplest definition, John, to answer your question, put people at ease. It is a system. It's a framework that allows people to deliver complex projects while maintaining their creativity. It's a pull system, in other words, that allows you to strive towards one piece flow, which is magical, as the two of you know. And I know your if your audience is listening to this, I hope that you know what one piece flow is. And that's doing things one at a time to completion. It is the fastest way to do things and to be in a state of flow so that you finish with low defects. Yes, Jake, you have your hand up. Uh, yes, I have a question for the audience as a as an ignorant construction professional, I have to ask, I see again and again on the those who shall not be named construction professional in the lean space on my LinkedIn, they have step one, one piece flow and directly above that, they have pre-work and prep for the next starting trade. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm building in an engineering pre-additional setup or closeout, how is that in line with one piece flow? Do you care to elaborate? Yeah, it's like, I, I almost know which friend of ours that is. And so they talk about that concept. So we can't, so one piece flow is the ideal, Jake. That is like heaven. That's like when John goes to take a drag on his uh, cigar and it's the perfect amount of smoke coming into his lungs or into his mouth if he doesn't inhale his cigar. I don't, you know, I don't know. Are, do you inhale your cigars, John? Okay, so you don't inhale cigars. Okay, so um, I was just checking. I'm just checking, just making sure. Yeah. So the perfect Unless amount of smoke. throw up. Yeah. yeah, to pull into his mouth, to hold and savor the flavor before exhaling. So it's the right amount at the right time 
exactly when he wants it. That's ideal, Jake. Now in construction, we have massive batch sizes. That's why three out of four projects are late across the country and across the world. I've pulled this and there's been research on this for decades and we still see about three out of four don't make it. And the 25% that do make it on time, most of those have heroic efforts to get there. It wasn't easy. No one ever says like, oh yeah, we, this job finished on schedule and it was easy. No, most people complain of how difficult it was, how much overtime they had to work, how much lost time they had with families. And so if we're still dealing with very large batch sizes, Jake, which is what we do typically in construction worldwide, you have to do some, some work ahead of the big batch before you can even accept it. So unfortunately, um, they're not there yet. And I haven't been to a project with some exceptions where I've seen small, very small batch sizes. Typically we see batch sizes. If I put it back, take the inventory of the work that we're talking about, it's usually in terms of months. We usually see months worth of inventory showing up on sites and then people having to deal with it, get it out of the way, do work, get ready to receive it rather than the opposite of having things ready with a good clean handoff so that the right amount of work can happen at the right amount of time. And by the way, so. <clears throat> I'm enjoying a uh, Fuente Opus X Angels share today. Came oh, up with the holidays. So fantastic smoke. For a Dominican, um, Nicaragua makes the best tobacco. Um, Dominican Republic's probably fighting with Cuba for second place. Um, so. And it's, uh, to, should uh, we say, John, it's hashtag not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored uh, yet. Um, L.L. Bean, uh, if you want to reach out, please do. Yes, L.L. Bean, if you're listening. John will even uh, stand up and turn on the camera for the right amount of cash flow. Well, I can't because I'm not wearing pants. Um, oh, that's so, Felipe, tell our audience who Jeff is. Yeah, so Jeff Sutherland, Dr. Jeff Sutherland, is one of the co-creators of Scrum, the original. We call him OG Godfather of Scrum. He is the West Point cadet. He is a doctor. I think he studied, I want to say, I know he worked in biology doing cancer research at one point in his career, but I think his doctorate might be in statistics of all cool things, John. You might appreciate that. I think you, I I think you would. I don't know if I Jake would appreciate that. statistics. Would you, Jake? I appreciate statistics deeper than I appreciate love. And oh, I, oh, I wow. say that... Uh, very, very sincerely. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a bar, Jake. And that's, and the the cool thing about Jeff is like, he is so self-aware that he knew in the early days that there were some skills that he was missing some marketing skills. And that's when he partnered with the co-creator, Ken Schwaber, who also helped to craft scrum as we know it today. And Kent was running a project management, a typical project management type of consulting company. And so the two of them partnered together shortly after Jeff finalized his system. Ken brought in some of the, the core values of Scrum, like courage, respect, commitment, focus. And I feel like I'm missing one. There are, five. are people not courageous before the system came into place? No, that's one of the things that Ken told Jeff. He's like, we studied high-performing teams. And one thing that all high-performing teams, this is his experience, have is courage to do different things, speak truth to power, and kind of challenge the status quo. And so if you're missing that courage component, uh, your team can still be good, but it won't be working towards its potential, which is beyond good. So 
Scrum is a, uh, you could say it's a, a management structure or maybe a leadership structure. Um, tell us briefly, like what it is, like why it's different from other methods for the folks listening. And then I'd like to get into some more meat. Yeah. It's like, so for those people listening, like Adam Hoots, if you're watching this episode, which probably not, but if you are, it is a good application of systems thinking because it introduces a couple of key feedback loops and using Jeff's word, it is the minimum amount of bureaucracy necessary for a team to galvanize around a project and get something done. So often people will see Scrum, they'll see sticky notes, they'll see a Kanban board with some three critical labels at a minimum. Um, typically you'll see like a to-do column with sticky notes. You'll see a doing column or a work in progress column of sticky notes in the middle. And on the far right, you'll see a done column or a completed column. And those names are not magical. You can, you can label the things what you want. And then teams that are a little more sophisticated, do a little bit longer term planning. will also have a backlog column on the far left, or they'll have a God, heaven forbid, they might even have a spreadsheet of work, John. They might even have a spreadsheet with all the requirements of stuff they have to do somewhere off to the side that can serve as their backlog, or some teams will have a calendar. We'll use those, those things to make the system come to life so that you can have the right meeting. So you start with a vision. What is this team? Why are we even in existence? What are we trying to accomplish? And construction, it's often not the answer building a building. Like if we're doing a school, the purpose of the school building is often to replace an existing school so that kids can have a safe and healthy environment to learn in if you're doing you know that type of project. So it's not just the super obvious building. It is the higher purpose of why and what this project is doing for the community or the owner itself. In healthcare, it might be you know developing some clinics. And so the purpose would be to treat people in underserved areas, depending on where it is. So the purpose is always aligned with the business case for the client. How is this helping them? And how is it helping you know, people just in general? So that would be the purpose. That purpose is where you start with the Scrum system. So just right out the gate in traditional project management, and I'm also a project management professional, we'll have something called a project charter. The project charter, uh, Jeff's actually commented on this quite a bit, says he actually likes it and he doesn't, he would not discourage anyone from still completing the project charter, but the charter I think in how it's described in the PMBOK, the Project Management Book of Knowledge, falls a little bit short of this higher purpose. So human beings, John and Jake, as you both know, um, we kind of like to know the why. And so if you start the system right away with telling people why are we doing it, you, you bring people in. And the goal can flex with the people on the team. Teams are typically you know four to six people. Uh, scrum teams can be as big as 10 people, but you start to get diminishing returns when you get teams bigger than 10. So you want to break those teams up into uh, smaller sizes. You could have a team of teams, or we say in scrum language, a scrum of scrums, same exact concept, same synonym. Uh, side note, John, I did actually get to ask General McChrystal, who wrote the book, Team of Teams, at the last LCI conference, Link Construction Institute conference in Phoenix via Zoom. Not unlike this, but my microphone wasn't as good as this one, John. And I asked Jerome McChrystal, I said, in Team of Teams, can we just admit that it was actually Scrum of Scrums and that it was all Scrum the whole time? And he said, yes, it was Scrum. And I was like, yeah, 
Yeah. Now, let me let me attack that right there because can't you just like scrum is everything? Like, I mean, I say I, I say scrum, scrum is everything. everything, but however, if you're missing these finite parts, then it's not scrum. It's what Jeff calls fake scrum or what other people in the industry call lightweight scrum. So you can have degrees of scrum. So I'm just covering like the main things that you need. So you can, we can call it scrum. So purpose is number one. Then you need a, a repository for all the work we're going to do. We call that the backlog and we pick a cycle of work. So I know you guys know cycle time. We pick a cycle of work. We call that the sprint. The most typical sprint cycle in the world has shifted to a five-day cycle. Amazing. You know, most people understand a five-day work week. People plan in weeks very typically, especially in project-based work. When Scrum was first invented, John and Jake, the cycle was six weeks. And then they realized over time that smaller cycles, smaller batch sizes, get you closer to one-piece flow, actually help you increase your throughput. So smaller cycles are more ideal, but construction naturally has a monthly cycle. So if teams start with the four-week cycle, it's totally okay. Over time, they will tend towards a two-week or a one-week cycle. Now, now we know what our cycle of time is. we got to pick what are we going to do from our backlog that still achieves the goal. So that goal is a filtering mechanism. Now we're bringing in some systems thinking. The goal is a filtering mechanism for us to say no to stuff that doesn't help us achieve the goal, baby. So in traditional project management, that's not there. Nowhere, and I, in my memory, listeners, if you're out there, you've recently just gotten your PMI, your PMP, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't see anything in the guide that tells you how to say no. And don't talk to me about stakeholder management, because that's not the same thing. In Scrum, we absolutely say that we use it as a filter and you shall say no to things that don't help you achieve that goal, that purpose. So now we've got our sprint cycle. From there, we're going to shift up into sprint planning. It's the first meeting in Scrum where we talk about what things from the backlog that we've prioritized because we've done our due diligence and we've read the scrum guide, ladies and gentlemen, you can read the scrum guide free on my podcast, or you can listen to the audio chapter. It's available at the EBFC show in, uh, I think it's the November episode. Just look for construction scrum in the EBFC show. And you can listen to that audio chapter with this voice in about this tone, John, it's lovely. And so, okay, you, so you go in, Oh, hold on. it's only a couple more things and it's over, John. It's a couple more things. You got to, you prioritize the work, the team now, because we now have a team. The person that owns that backlog is the person that's responsible for what the team delivers. That person is called in Scrum, the product owner. Now the team pulls in to that top. What are we going to do in this cycle? This five, let's assume five days. And then they go to work on it. They organize themselves. They decide who's got the skills to do what. We say the scrum team has cross-functional skills, all the skills necessary to get the job done. Now, of course, everyone is not self-contained and you got to reach out every now and then, but that's neither here nor there. So the team goes after the work. They do the work every single day. The scrum master, the servant leader to the group, helps the team stay in the scrum framework and also runs all but one meeting. Every day they check in in a daily stand-up meeting called the Daily Scrum, where they look back and say, what are we getting done? What are we doing now? What obstacles or roadblocks do we have? And that's it. 15 minutes or less with the whole team. I've seen teams of 20 still do it in 15 minutes, too. It's very well, very well. The, the same basic kata questions? Same basic kata questions. I know, Jake, every time I see people on the kata, I'm like, God, that's so scrummish. 
<laughs> but at the end, at the end of the sprint cycle, John and Jake, we get to the next meeting, which is called the sprint review, where the team can invite anyone on planet Earth can come into this meeting and the team can show and tell, like in kindergarten, what they got done and get feedback from the client, the stakeholders, the people receiving their work, where the product owner runs that meeting. First time the product owner has done something since keeping that backlog organized. They run that meeting. They get the feedback. The team sometimes goes. Better teams bring the whole team to that because it's magical to hear from the people receiving your work, how they like it. Was it the right amount? Is it good? Is, are we hitting the minimum viable product? Are we delivering stuff without defects? All that good, happy stuff. We're getting feedback. Now we're back. It's another feedback loop introduced back in, which is going to propel the team's work, keep them engaged with the goal. So many benefits to that review meeting. And then after that meeting's over, we say, thank you, everybody. Goodbye now. We take that feedback and we use it to groom the priorities for next time, as well as other, other benefits. And then we also look at the next meeting. Now the Scrum Master comes back in and takes over the next meeting called the retrospective. And the retrospective sounds just like what you think it is. It's a look back at how the team worked, what went well, what could be better, how fast are we going, and what things should we change, what experiments should we do for next week. Now we're working on how we work, not just the work itself, but also how we work. It's a second powerful feedback loop. And this is what helps to change the trajectory of how the team's working together, the cohesiveness. The Scrum Master of all the things responsible for John and Jake also own team happiness. And in that retrospective, that's a great place to gauge how happy is my team because we know happier teams have greater IQ and throughput. And then after we finish the retro, we go home, day's over, typically work's over, and then we repeat the cycle the following week with the sprint planning meeting. And that's it. That's the whole scrum system right there, baby. A simple pool system. We don't multitask. Let me just say it again. You do not multitask. Multitasking is a myth. It's a myth. So anyone that wants to talk to me about the benefits of multitasking, I will gladly battle with you on LinkedIn. We'll go through the research and we can show that the, the latest in neuroscience disproves your incorrect assumption that you need to get better at multitasking. You don't. Yeah. And I think, uh, people who are skilled in whatever work they do. You know, when you look at somebody who is uh, at the top of their game, like a Steve Jobs, one thing they all have in common is this uh, almost Zen-like singularity of focus. They work on one thing and they get it to completion. And when I say completion, I mean MVP, right? right. But they get it at least to here before they switch tasks. And of course, if you're in production, as I am, you know that task switching is the number one cause of waste in operations. Um, it's much worse in an office environment, frankly, um, than in production. But what, so I appreciate that broad overview for our listeners out there. If you've really never heard of Scrum or maybe just heard of it, don't know anything about it, highly encourage you to listen to what Felipe had to say on his show, and you know Google it and and do some research. Um, I think it's a helpful body of knowledge to have, even if you don't currently use it, it'll help you communicate uh, with a lot of folks in different industries. And you can probably take away some really good ideas for your own management. Yeah, Having said a shameless that, plug, John, we've got uh, I mean, people listening. If you're going to Google, just Google, don't Google, go to constructionscrum.com, 
all the resources and some of the things we're talking about, like multitasking, all the, the goody good stuff that's in the book is all for free on the website, including two and a half chapters uh, and the free audio chapter. So that's, that's all you really need. And the scrum guide, all the important links. Cause if you go to Google, John, you might just get noise and not signal. So yeah, I want to help people do. cut, cut through the noise, go to some good signals. It's tested their case studies there as well. If you're like, how in the world can I do this? I'm working on a blah, 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 fill in the blah. It could work for you too. So thank, thank you, good John. results on Google, John. You might get better results, but you're not going to get Felipe's results. So follow yeah. those and try. <laughs> yeah, we're working on search well, engine optimization, John, so that it can, it can rank <laughs> at the top. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great topic that, you know, is probably outside the bounds of this conversation, but we need to have it at some point, which is the internet has gotten to the point where there's so much information the challenge is the ignorant person doesn't know what information is good or valid or what isn't. And I apply this specifically to personal finance. There is yeah. a, kind of a, a standard way in the United States of America to get wealthy, really wealthy. And it's a path that pretty much anyone can follow. It's well known. It's everywhere. It's all over the internet. But you know what else is all over the internet? The other 90 whatever percent is garbage. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you might end up, you know, listening to somebody who tells you to cut up all your credit cards or something, you know, <laughs> equally foolish. Or somebody that tells you not uh, to go on that vacation that you've been saving up for for a year because yeah. having fun is against their their rules. Religion. Even though they, they yeah, I'm not going to say who that is, John, but Gordon's brother really needs to look financial strategy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, or Nancy's so, sister because she's just as bad too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that. Um, so one of the things that I liked about Scrum, because I uh, immediately, I started working for this company. And to be fair, they were a tech company uh, that was trying to do an operation. And they had been outsourcing the operations. They decided to take it in-house, probably a, not a smart move. Um, and so they had Scrum as their management system. And like I said, they didn't do it well. But as soon as I experienced it, something clicked inside where I said, all this is really is uh, almost lean principles applied to project management and managing teams. And the reason it stuck with me so much is throughout my operational excellence journey of experience, the aspect of management that uh, typically is challenged, that people have a lot of trouble with is the actual management piece, which is kind of critical because lean is a management strategy and it's a philosophy, right? And so you can get whole teams of people that know how to do stuff, you know, tools and tasks. Like I know how to run a SMED event. Okay, great. But what's missing is that management piece up here that gets everybody working together, pulling on the same rope in the same direction, right? And that's I what, that's what running our, across that. It's what our, our I'm going to just put it out there. I'm just going to make an assumption. Our combined hero, Mr. William Edwards Deming, and his system of profound knowledge called the fourth part of this, which was the psychology part. You remember that, Jake? Are you, are you down on, on Deming? I, I, I'm down on the details, but I, I am not a super fan. 
Oh, I'm I do a not fan. hold dimming sacred to some elevated plane of existence. I hold I hold them in a special spot in my heart, John, because that's the part that he talked about often was the, especially for management, is they're typically not understanding the psychology of the people that they work with and themselves. You have to have a certain level of emotional intelligence and then to be self-aware and then know what motivates and demotivates people that you're working with. Like, how do we get people all pulling in that same direction? And that's where a lot of people that reach for the tools are like, oh, I'm just going to order off the menu this uh, a la carte scrum thing. And I'm going to pick and choose just one part. I'm going to pick just this Kanban thing. And then when it doesn't work, I'm going to be like, oh, scrum is garbage. Well, no, you you picked and choose something without even understanding the system. Your approach was garbage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or your intentions were garbage. Like, I don't like, like I've been on, uh, project improvements. And sometimes people are like trying to get everyone to hundred percent work capacity where they're working at 100%. And I'm like, why, if you, if you understand how this thing all works, you know, some parts will be at hundred percent or clear close to nothing ever works at hundred percent. That's recipe for breaking. You get close to a high utilization, but it, there'll be other parts of your system that are completely unutilized and barely doing anything, but, uh, it's knowing how to dial those things in together in a cohesive way, which allows you to make your throughput insanely fast. And that's the opportunity for people. Like typically throughput's the name of the game. It's not having every single thing in your system operating at a, at near hundred percent. That's not what we want. That's not what our customer wants. Our customer wants what they wanted yesterday. So dial your system in so you can get that to happen. And some, that means sometimes people are just going to be chilling. It's okay for people to chill. Like I've been wondering, you know, what's Jake been doing this whole time? He's just taking right. all as, as long as the value is delivered, if I'm just in the corner, he's literally the entire time, who cares, right? Exactly. If I deliver on the value proposition. That is literally all that matters. But let me attack uh, the guy attack. with dimmings close to his heart. And let yeah. me just ask a hard-hitting question and get Come you to dive in for me. Why, if his 14 principles are so powerful and game-changing, does nobody, not one company you can ever name ever, adhere to them? Yeah, outside of the companies in Japan that win the Deming Prize, but even those companies, the 14 principles, when he wrote them, if you don't know, Google this, you can Google and it'll actually give you a good result. Deming's 14 management principles. He wrote those four Western companies. He said it was a sickness in management schools and he, he went after academia that they picked off some really bad habits and things that became popular. And I mean, even Peter Drucker's management by objective that on his deathbed, he talked about the shortcomings of that and how it was not used as he had intended it. Uh, they were, they were contemporaries. And so those principles are for American companies. Like the first one is use long-term thinking, right? That's the first principle. How many companies do we know, especially publicly traded companies that are trying to hit a certain stock price or have Those their are the two that I attack every time we have this conversation. Oh, you those always attack the first one? thinking, two uh, numerical goals. So please defend those points. That's right. So long-term thinking, like why, you know, what, what is the purpose of this organization? When you ask most management professionals in their companies, like what is the purpose of this company? They can't answer you because they don't know. A lot of companies do what I call making money by accident. There are a lot of companies that make money by accident, quite a few. I mean, we probably have some friends that work at such companies. <laughs> Long-term thinking is one of the first things in the Toyota production system. 
you know, when Taichi talked about with Shingeo Shingo, they developed it together. Let's give credit where credit's due. In the Toyota production system, even in the 2001 update, and you can see this again in Jeffrey Liker's updated the Toyota Way second edition, they still talk about that long-term philosophy. Where do you think they've got that from? Deming. And they adopted it. It made sense. And to a large extent, they already had it, but they didn't have it as a system, a framework of values that will help excel and propel their company. So like at Toyota, I mean, people always joke all the time about, you ask them, what do they make? They don't, uh, a lot of people say, well, it's an assembly company, not even a car company. They just assemble things together. But uh, people in Toyota consistently say, what we do is we are positively benefiting the world uh, primarily through transportation, allowing people to get from point A to point B, right? So that's a totally different answer. And that's a long-term answer. And that type of vision and long-term thinking, just in how people, everyday people at the company, from the janitor to the CEOs, answer that question so consistently, shows you that they've adopted a long-term thinking mindset. And it's permeated through uh, their entire culture. So let me jump in here. Uh, First of all, shout out to Toyota in their recent EV press conference. Uh, Mr. Toyota stood in front of a concept vehicle designed for white glove final mile delivery. And this vehicle had a QR code under the windshield and a couple of um, journalists, you know, snapped it on their phone and clicked the link. And I'll be damned if Toyota didn't rickroll the entire world on that show. So shout out to whoever, uh, whichever intern came up with that for Toyota. But I thought that was absolutely hilarious that the world's largest automaker or uh, most profitable for sure um, thought that was funny because I think it's freaking hilarious. So great job there. Appreciate the humor. Um, Jake, long-term thinking there. <laughs> long-term thinking. Yeah, really long-term. When did Rick Roll go out of style? 2008 or something. <laughs> It's, uh, it's come back. It's come back strong on, yeah, uh, on YouTube. My son talks about that. people get rickrolled every day. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, I can remember our anniversary every year because we got married on my birthday, and that was an accident. It was the only Saturday in the summer that worked for everyone. Um, but now I'm so happy that it happened because I never forget our anniversary. So that's, that's um, genius. I know. I I should tell everybody I did it that way on purpose. Um, John, when's our anniversary? Put you on the spot on camera. What? When's our anniversary? Don't the fuck you talking about? When's our anniversary? Is that legal in Texas yet? (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) So back to uh, back to the show. So Jake, what I hear you saying is uh, something like, "If Deming is so great, how come this first principle just has such such a small amount of uptake?" among companies. And I think that uh, there is a a fair response to say that the way the American um, economic markets are designed uh, is in conflict with what Deming was teaching. I I think that's fair. Exactly right. There's an incentive in the ecosystem that prevents people from adopting it. And if you're going to go that way, you're going to be like a a pioneer or you're going to be an outlier for, company, for an American company today to stand up and say, we're going to start to think long-term, we're going to start to think multiple generations, we're going to think at least even just far as 20 years out. You don't hear 20-year thinking. At best, you hear five-year business plan thinking or one-year plan 
Rarely do you hear beyond that. So you're going to be going against the grain, the status quo, what everybody thinks is the safe thinking. And I love it. Let's just say that, let's check this out, Jake. If you just look at the stock market and you look at the, the top companies, the blue chip companies today, I think only one is there that was there 50 years ago. Only one company. So people in America, the traditional ways of management, you're not going to be around in 50 years. So if you want to make room for little upper up and coming whippersnappers, go ahead and ignore long-term thinking. And then when your company goes out of business, all that genius and creativity that you've had on lock will become available to other people that are innovative and creative and will transform much faster in different types of management systems. So go ahead and resist. If I look at my LinkedIn and of my 7,000-ish connections, probably 80% of them are in the lean community, I guarantee you every single one of them has a great idea that like, well, if companies just did this, that's probably really true. But unfortunately, like the best system is the one you actually use. So if you write something that's great on a piece of paper and get that communication out to everybody, it doesn't actually mean anything unless it's what everybody's adopting and having rapid success with. So my challenge to Dimming is, yes, those are good thoughts on a piece of paper, but I don't elevate him to this special place because if he did, it would have actually changed the fundament for how the world operates, which at least in America, it does not. And I think there's a little bit of a chicken egg thing there with the philosophy, right? Where uh, some folks see the world changing so fast that there's no point in having a long-term plan. And the inverse perspective is, well, the reason your companies don't last, the reason there's only one, you know, fortune 100 company that was there 50 years ago is because you didn't have a long-term plan. Um, I know there is some other market forces. GE is an example where they're not a company anymore. Uh, I can't believe they killed their lighting business. I thought that was a fixture of America pun intended. Um, <laughs> you know, so they'll have different names now, right? It, but but uh, it, I think that uh, there's two competing perspectives there. Like, did uh, one cause the other or vice versa? Um, but if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to kind of put a bow on that uh, sidetrack, yeah. which uh, I yeah, appreciate. We can fight about that later on a three-way call. Oh, yeah. Yes, we're absolutely. <laughs> we'll gang up on Jake later. Um, but we talked a little bit about what Scrum is, encourage people to, to get familiar with it. And obviously you wrote a book, Construction Scrum. And I know that writing a book is uh, quite a bit of work, even if yeah, you Congratulations on your book, John. I haven't uh, gotten it yet. I'm going to do Jake's book first and then your book next. <laughs> Just so Save you know. Best for last. Yeah, I like <laughs> that. Um, so so uh, I know that anybody that puts that amount of work into... Um, a book, you know, that much labor, you've got something to say, right? And so maybe you can just share with our audience, like, why Scrum for construction? Like, why does construction need Scrum? And what are the benefits? Yeah, so number one, I want it, the book is for anybody that is not enjoying themselves in the work that they do. So that's the, let's just get that number one. I don't think that everybody should do Scrum. I don't want anybody that's forced to do something to do it. I want it to be voluntary because you want to try something different or you want to have fun. You want to get more done. It's going to align with what your wants are as well. And I think that we can actually meet everybody in their needs. That is possible. So number one, that's that. 
I had a terrible experience, John and Jake. I had, uh, when I first got into construction, wow, 23, 24 years ago, I saw like, hey, if you're going to be successful here, and I had good mentors at the time when I was young, right out of school, I studied electrical engineering, and I did a construction internship. Even in my internship, um, you are quietly encouraged to work more than the hours that you got paid for, which uh, looking back on it is uh, akin to being taken advantage of, <laughs> in my opinion. But the the traditional thing is like, you want to, you got to show up, do your time. And if you want to excel, you have to work harder than anybody else. And uh, that working harder is just a fallacy. It's wrong. You want to work better and smarter than at, at least your peers or don't compete with other people. Be at least better than yourself yesterday. The best person to compete with is you because you are unique. And so look at Jake. Jake's like sh shaking his head. Yes, I got him. I'm pulling him in, John. Pulling, I'm pulling him in. John's not unique today because 30,000 other middle-aged folks have that LL Bean outfit on. But <laughs> I, I take your point. Yeah, but how many can rock it in front of those patio doors like he can? That's true. Jake, That's true. <laughs> yeah. The, the uh, jealousy. You're laying it on really thick today. I'm just I know. It, I just have ver versions of this the rest of my life. It, <laughs> it is colors of polo shirts in different directions, and I'm cool yeah. with that. I can accept that. I wish I would have got the memo. I would have wore something gray today, but you guys didn't tell me ahead of time how to dress, so you got I'll, green. I'll adjust the uh, filter later. <laughs> okay, uh, beautiful. Just a... Yeah. Uh, tip for your sartorial choices jake if you choose vertical stripes it'll make you look thinner so i'm just saying <laughs> well you know what before i attack everything about the essence of your being i must say on halloween <laughs> special while i like emulated you for the day several strangers were like damn you look good today you dress well <laughs> Like, what does this mean for the rest of my life? I've never gotten that comment ever in the day I choose to impersonate you. Like three people, like yeah, I think we works. we might need to go and check out his closet and do a closet intervention on him. <laughs> uh, it is if you can just you can literally take a color palette and swap this. You already know what's in my closet, so yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, so I wrote it. It came from personal pain, is where it started. And uh, from that internship to working for a decade in the construction industry, uh, there were many times where it got dicey. And uh, I mean, even my health uh, came into question, like I was working myself too hard. It wasn't like anyone had any kind of like uh, blackmail on me. They're just making me work hard just because I'd done it to myself, self-inflicted. But I didn't know that an alternative existed until a gentleman that had actually worked in manufacturing presented some ideas, some principles from uh, Lean, like continuous improvement and respect for people, two of my favorite principles. And I saw how happy everybody on that, that team was. I was like, I want some of that. And then it got me onto a path of learning and better mentorship with people that were pursuing alternatives. And then from there, that eventually got me onto Scrum. And even with Lean, using just Lean in the way that I was taught and what I learned, and I studied you know, Womack's book, Lean Thinking uh, by Womack and Jones. That was one of my first lean books ever. I didn't even read the Toyota Way until like three or four years ago. It was, it was a long time, but a lot of books in between, a lot of Deming books, Jake, between oh Lean God. Thinking and then finally that way. Did you take any action out of any of those books? I like, did. Did you stop your own numerical goals? 
So in, in lean, in lean thinking, what I learned from there, which got me to stop working weekends and nights was the concept of looking at your work in three different lenses kind of, and I'd always tell people like a stoplight system, like you come up to a light, it's either red, yellow, or green. So green is value added work. Yellow is non-value added, but necessary like policies or following the law, like paying income taxes, which some people don't do, but uh, some law abiding citizens do pay your taxes people, unless you want trouble with the IRS, they can be very persnickety. And then we have the, the red, which is like stops you dead in your tracks or equate that to waste things that do not add any value for people receiving your work in the supply chain or your customer. Don't do those things. Stop doing anything red. And just by eliminating a lot of the red and some of the yellow and working more on the green, I was able to stop working nights and weekends. I became much, much more productive, exponentially productive, but then I hit a wall and I hit the wall because I was missing feedback loops. And later when I discovered scrum and literally, you know, shout out to Bezos and the people working at Amazon because, um, Amazon recommended the book based on all my Deming books, Jake. It said, oh, you're reading all these books about lean and Deming. You should check out this book by Dr. Jeff Sutherland. And so it was just an algorithm recommendation to me that changed my whole life. I read that book and uh, started implementing it right away. And I typically read and implement, Jake. That's my, that's my method. I learned is like, learn it and do it right away. As fast as I can start. Exp- I don't even wait till the book's all the way over. If I read something good, I like go, let's experiment with this right now. Let's try to break this. Let's try to see if this works. And that's where it makes a huge difference. And then for with Scrum, John, that's where my throughput became exponential. That's when I 2X my output. That's when I 3X, 8X. And I think I've like 10X it a couple of times. Whereas now I've, I've got my hand in so many things successfully. It's because of Scrum that I can do so many things. I love that because... um, I give this advice to people on a frequent basis and I've even put it out like on the internet once or twice, uh, which is a book is only as valuable as you come to terms with, you know, where you really are. And then you have this knowledge over here, you come to terms with it. How can I apply it? Or what can I apply it? Right. Eat the meat, spit out the bones type of thing uh, for change. And I've been to school several times and um, some of the people that I went to school with were, um, you know, had like an eidetic memory and they were experts at like talking down to minutia about different theories. Right. And uh, I could typically hold my own in those conversations, but what it always sort of circled back to for me was you have all this crap up in your head and you haven't done a damn thing. And that's why you're a career academic. You're a career academic because you can't do, you haven't figured out how to put it into practice. And I've seen so much more success from people that take one half-baked idea and implement it than from people that know many more better ideas. In fact, I know a fellow that started a multi-million dollar company uh, after reading Good to Great. And Good to Great is probably my least favorite business book. I think it has all kinds of problems with it. Same here. But he read it and he applied the principles. And at the very least, it gave him the focus to build a great business. And, you know, as he was doing that, of course, his thinking evolved past that shoddy foundation, you know. Um, But yeah, the application is where everything is at. And let's, uh, you know, to all of our friends out there that are listening, you know, let's strive not to be um, 
you know, nerds that know a lot of stuff. Let's strive to be people that are actually making a difference in our companies and in the world. And if that means you can only come to terms with one small thing and get better and make the work-life experience for you and your colleagues better, do it. Just do it. And then Absolutely. you can move on and learn more, right? I've had a lot of people that uh, that I mentor, they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, one of the first mentoring things is like, how'd you get started? What book should I read? And I was like, those are great questions, but that's not going to help you. Like how I got started doesn't, I don't know where you're at right now. Let's talk about you for a second. And most of the time we talk to people, you, you end up talking to people that get into this analysis paralysis and they're just trying to vacuum up a bunch of information because they think that if I just learn this one more thing, or if I just learn this one more concept, then I'll be able to do X. And the reality is you need to start doing X now. What small action can you take so that you're closer to X? In my mind, you're either physically doing things that are getting you closer to the action or doing things that are keeping you further away from it. And so I want to encourage everybody to take action. Felipe Engineer, every book is the Kama Sutra. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Man, that sounds like a great title for the show. Great title for the show. Like, yeah, you want to you want to put it into practice and get the feedback and get into the get into the ecstasy, Jake, to stay on your theme. Like I've read a couple of pages in that book; it's fascinating. So we want to have to actually do it's it, a, right? Yeah, you read the book to. as many times as you want. It, it's funny, yeah. but it's a great example, Jake. Like, talk about a, the biggest waste on earth. You read the Kama Sutra and you can comment chapter and verse. You know, you know the footnotes, but you've never done it. You don't know it, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly true. So yeah, you have to, you have to get out there and do something. And a lot of people, sometimes they just need permission. So if you're listening to this quality podcast, I highly recommend that you take John's counsel, my counsel and Jake's counsel and go do something, try an experiment and try a small. And like, I learned this from uh, Dave Stone's work in Kinevin. They're really intentional on safe to fail experiments, especially when you're first getting started. Safe to fail means that what you try, the consequences are small enough that if it totally blows up in your face, you're not going to get hurt. You're not going to hurt anybody else. So you can do something small. What's what small step? It's kind of like the Toyota Kata again, Jake. What small action can you take before the next time we meet again? Right. That's what the coach would be asking the person that's getting the training because we want to Take that bias to action because now here's where we're going to get nerdy, John, because we believe in empirical process control theory or the philosophy of empiricism, which is that human beings learn by having experiences with their senses. That's fancy speak for just living your life. <laughs> so living your life, it doesn't happen just in reality with rules, right? <laughs> like, right. Ah. It doesn't just happen in your mind. Like you also, yeah, you, there's a mental component to you, but there's also a physical component and experiences with the physical component, you know, mirrored in, you're going to learn things like as you try to start with scrum, you don't even have to do perfect scrum. I always tell people like in your work right now, if you're just totally jacked up and your throughput's garbage, the first thing to start doing scrum is stop multitasking, protect some time in the day where you get yourself into some deep work that could, maybe you do that for a month where you just take carve out 30 minutes a day, five days a week for a month. And that's going to build so much more capacity for you. It's going to pay dividends to you. And then after that, then we can talk about 
prioritization. Then we can talk about having a purpose and these other things, but you're not ready yet. You can't just like flip a switch and jump into the system. Like some, I mean, some people are like, we have no choice. And, you know, don't ever miss the opportunity to take advantage of a crisis. That's what I always say, John. But uh, yeah, so that's where, that's where it came from. That was the genesis of it. It was a bad experience. Thank God I had that bad experience because it developed my character and my resolve to throw myself completely into the framework and just go right after it. And when I did, I went from, I was already not working weekends when I had discovered and been practicing lean principles for a while. But then when I used Scrum, I was able to extricate myself from a hard bid project, which in design means the lowest qualified price wins the contract based on almost dollar value alone, almost not. There's some other things here, but I started using it on a hard bid job. And people on my team were like, we're not using that. We're not doing that. And I had my scrum board up in my office and I ran everything on that because in the first week that I did it, when I was in my review meeting, I realized that I was wasting probably 60 to 75% of my week as a manager sitting in meetings that I didn't have anything to contribute to other than someone invited me. And I said, yes, like a dumbass. And so it got smarter in that reflection, that first feedback cycle. I said, what if I don't go to all these meetings? What if I only go to meetings where I'm actively engaged and providing value? And then the meetings, I can read meeting notes on the other ones, or I can just ask the people, if there's something for me, we're all in the same office. You can just tap my shoulder or talk to me afterwards. And making that shift allowed me to gain basically two to three days a week where I could do other things like go to the field and support the work being installed and get become smarter at how concrete operations actually operate. And so I was able to get like a, an education of how things come together and how do foremen manage and lead their teams. Like I had time to do all that, which I didn't have before when I was just a manager going to meetings all day. Yeah, so, let me just, John has this particular phrase and I love it, so I'm going to repeat it, regurgitate it like a nice monkey. But uh, if you're working in the business, you cannot work on the business. That's right. That's absolutely, I think I think I saw that, maybe I, that might be in Tim Ferriss's Forward Workweek book too, that type of concept, or maybe in Tools of the Titans or something, but that's been kicked around uh, quite a bit. It's a great concept. If you're just in it, you can't work on it. So you had this experience and uh, learned from it and uh, implemented Scrum as uh, part of your solution and evolution, personal growth. Um, one thing that uh, it seems to me is critical for Scrum to really work well is trust because part of Scrum is I'm not going to micromanage anymore, right? You right. own this project over here and we agreed on deliverables in the scrum meeting and, you know, a timeline and everything else. And then you're going to come back and report out. I have to trust you to be able to do that. So maybe you can talk a couple of minutes about uh, behaviors among leaders that build or tear down trust. And uh, hopefully a little bit about, um, you know, if you're in a low trust environment, what do you do? Yeah. That's a great question, John. We actually, in the Scrum Master training that we do for construction professionals, design and construction professionals, we have a slide just on how 
people break trust in a team. <laughs> I have a whole slide dedicated to it because, and, and that slide came from just sampling the environment, the traditional environment at, at companies. And it's not just uh, construction companies. It's also software companies, manufacturing companies, research academia, everywhere. This low trust is a major problem. And so what we find, we tell people like, if you want to break trust, the number one way to break trust is to lie. Don't tell the truth. That's the number one. And that's on the slide. And I just, I have the slide. Remember, I remember it. So lying, if you're in an environment where your boss or your team is lying to each other, you're in a low trust environment. And here's a, an example that includes white lies as well. So if somebody asks you, like you're talking about this deliverable, so we have got this timing component. In construction, I always tell people that I'm teaching how to facilitate and run meetings, like when you ask somebody, how long is something going to take? The default white lie answer is two weeks. So if anyone answers to nothing in the world takes 10 days, it's a lie. It's a guess. And it's got buffers built in. People sometimes use the phrase sandbagging. The reason people give that cushion back to you is because they don't trust you. A better question to ask is, what is the work? Have people describe what the work is. So asking better questions will increase trust. We're talking about what tears trust down. So lying first tears it down. White lies also tear it down and contribute to a low trust environment. The other thing is tell people what to do. That will also decrease trust. So John and Jake, if you guys have this amazing mind for creating systems and allowing flow to happen, and I'm and you guys work for me, if I try to tell you, hey, of this things that you're going to apply, don't apply this. Make sure you do this. Do this thing. Have this meeting at this exact time. And I, I start micromanaging you. I'm going to decrease trust because you're just like, hey, I'm the expert in this thing. You hired me because this is what I do. Why are you trying to control every aspect of my job? So telling people what to do is another way to decrease trust. I had a, a, I actually learned this from a carpenter foreman. He taught me this on that hard bit job where I first started using Scrum. He said, hey, don't tell me what to do. Tell me what needs to be done and let me figure out how to get there. That's why you hired me. Tell me what needs to be done. So we should explain as a, as a leader in our teams, let's talk about what the deliverable is. What are the results are like, like Jake was, he's been hinting at this whole conversation. What are some numerical targets that we should be trying to hit? And what are the reasons that we should hit those? Those are actually important because those things are going to be ways for us to gauge our progress. And at the end of the day, we've got to get paid for something. We just can't be like partying together every day, drinking the lean scrum Kool-Aid. Like, let's also deliver something to the client. So, and we can count that everything. I believe Jake, that uh, everything can be counted. And I've studied uh, Dr. Wheeler's book, Donald Wheeler's um, statistics book, who was the person that Deming recommended people study as well. Genius, statistical process control theory. People, if you want to nerd out, that's a good thing to get lost in the rabbit well, hole. Well, get to on. chapter eight in my book and then let's talk about it. Okay. When I get there, I will, I'll call you back up. Be like, Jake, 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 I'm finally here. And so that also decreases trust. Now to combat, those are the big, major players. Uh, what causes it, John, is that people don't give each other time. They don't give each other time to actually know each other. So a lot of these like uh, things that people despise and from these lean consultants is they'll do things like icebreakers 
or getting to know people on the team. And a lot of the people that are in the work are like, we don't have time for this. It's like, well, you've been working with strangers for a decade because you don't know anything about them and you are in a low trust environment. You need to know, human beings need to know all the people involved in this project team and what they're doing. We know from uh, research and psychology and communication research and uh, sociology that a team will actually increase their throughput when they know what everyone on the team is doing. That's why transparency is one of the fundamental pillars of scrum. A lot of times if you just increase the transparency, like if I know what you're doing, John, I don't have to ask you if, if we have a way that we can transparently show maybe through a Kanban board or through a, you know, a grease board, just showing progress or on Jake on Jake's processes, maybe we have like this cool software that shows our throughput and I can check different things like work in progress, cycle time and other things. If I can just see that visually, I don't have to ask them about it. It's there. We have high transparency. So the trust is going to increase, right? It's going to increase. The more I can see what's going on with my people, my teams, what we're doing, the more we can trust each other because we, we know we have a common understanding. And so take the time. If you're in a low trust environment, start by first getting to know who's on your team. And you don't have to do it like in the, like if you're in a high stress or very complicated or complex workflow, don't do it in the workflow. Do it before or after work. Take And it, it takes minutes. If you ask somebody like, how are you doing? How are you? Hey, Jake, are you okay? How are you, Jake? And then actually make the space to let that conversation happen. It could happen in five minutes or 10 minutes. You're going to get dividends on that because now, you know, I know that Jake likes, you know, horizontal stripes. He doesn't care what he looks like on camera. So I know he's gangster already. So it makes me actually like him more that he doesn't care to look like an LLB model like John. And John just has good taste. I mean, it's not like a good or a bad. It's just a unique to Jake. And that's cool. And just knowing that is good. And also knowing that we're going to fight about Deming and why I still have Deming right here in my heart. That's Okay. It's, I like that he has his own opinion, even if it's wrong. <laughs> I mean, all the opinions that aren't mine are wrong, but I, I still respect you for having them, right? That is the litmus test. Um, yeah, another thing with, um, you know, we talk about building trust. Um, there's a cultural feedback loop because ev- everything is interconnected, you know, when it right. comes to people because we're complex. And you mentioned your... Uh, board, you know, where you're tracking deliverables and, and owners and projects and all of that. Um, in the progress principle, uh, Harvard Business Review, you know, they mentioned that the key to the employee's inner work life is daily progress in meaningful tasks, right? And all the elements of that sentence are pretty important. Um, if you can show that daily progress, and also the meaning, like you said, starting with the why uh, for the task, you're improving the inner work life of the people doing the work. And as their satisfaction and happiness at work increases, then the uh, buy-in and the execution also increases. And so it's it's sort of a reinforcement loop that I found to be very effective. Absolutely. Yeah, we know. That. I'll go for it, Jake. Absolutely. But I, I want to poke on what you said about lying and then transparency. I actually place transparency even above like lying and white lying because sufficient levels of transparency, it is near impossible to lie about. 
So like that's right. generally like where I start day one within a business is let's map exactly how we create value. Make sure everybody knows because they're building trust because everybody knows what everybody's doing, right? You have a clear, concise model for how we do it. And then when something goes wrong, it is equally as transparent. There's not a lie, a shuffle, uh, let me buffer time on a real example here. We actually know. Yeah, but that's the reason that that doesn't happen as frequently as it should is that it's just scary. That's just scary for people. Right. You know, the fog of war is a real uh, comfort blanket for a lot of people. Sometimes that is the result of a vicious corporate culture where, you know, you mess up, you're gone or uh, demoted or publicly shamed. I work for an international manufacturer, you know, that I won't name, but you would know who I was talking about instantly. Um, and they had a policy where your boss could, at their discretion, bust you two pay grades and reassign you to a new job anywhere in the world. Well, yeah, they had a built in punishment system. You know, you better make friends with your boss because they have a lot of power over you. And I saw it uh, used a couple of times to basically force people to quit. You know, I'm not moving to Indonesia. Um, you know, so when you have cultures like that, where people are scared to fail, then the fog of war becomes incredibly important for self-preservation. And so, you know, things like swim lane maps and, and that level of transparency can be really threatening to people. And we have to attack the root cause. Just putting uh, that transparency in place isn't actually going to help your business if you have that kind of culture. Absolutely. It's actually going to, it's going to be worse for your, worse. your company yeah those those worse. drivers are uh we learned this in business school a long time ago there's a work done by herzog and he looked at uh what they called like these factors of hygiene and i don't remember all of the things that he listed but essentially boiled down to human beings have two types of driver main drivers internal and external drivers and we know that the internal drivers and john you hit on two of them uh being able to work towards mastery. Mastery is just getting better at your craft, what you do. There is a joy in getting better at what you do. And that we should encourage people to achieve and strive towards mastery, self-mastery for what they're doing. That's the one. And then you mentioned the other one too, the most, uh, the, arguably the most powerful, which is purpose. Having purpose is so critical to getting people to really come to life and show up as their whole selves in what they do. And then uh, on the flip side, when you talked about that, that policy of that company is designed on purpose so that people become subordinated to their managers. That's what Deming would say, Jake, drive out fear because it is going to decrease creativity. And it's actually going to stifle that organization's growth potential because you're not safe to bring up new ideas or challenge your boss. I mean, sometimes your boss could have a bad day and they could be a little bit crazy. That could happen. Everyone has their off days. And the next thing you know, you're departing the company because you were going to be creative one day and your boss wasn't feeling it. It's completely unfair, archaic, and dumb. And By the that way, policy, one, yeah. One way to tell if your company's creativity is dead is to look at growth. If you are growing because the market is growing in outlying sectors like AME or, um, you know, new market exposure, uh, you might be in big trouble. 
a classic example would be Kodak, where uh, they reached this tipping point where the only way they were growing was selling film in developing countries. That's when the handwriting was on the wall, right? Um, so side note for everybody out there, if you're uh, curious about the creativity in your company, look at where the growth is happening. If it's happening through market expansion into undeveloped areas and not in existing markets, you might have a problem. No, oh, companies in the United States too, same same thing. If your company grows when the stock market has been performing well, when economic indicators are good, and then when the economy shifts, because it's an on a site, unfortunately, because of the Federal Reserve System that we have, John, which we could talk about separately, <laughs> when the economy then shifts again and you shed people, you don't have high creativity in your organization because you're just following the market. But yep. people will lose their memory and just think that, oh, we're, on, we're growing right now. And they set these growth goals. The second it's good, yep. The oh, second it's good. 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 And, then, and then when they're shedding jobs, if you have to shed jobs because the market is de- is you know going on a down downward cycle um you're just following the market and you don't have something magical unfortunately but some companies can t- continue if they really have a real growth policy they can actually grow no matter what the economic cycle is because they are innovating and so, some companies do that they're rare they're they are rare but that can be done well felipe we appreciate you coming on today and we are coming up on the end of our time why don't you uh, tell our audience how they can get in touch with you? The best way to get a hold of me, ladies and gentlemen, is LinkedIn. And if you just search Felipe Engineer Manriquez, that is the best way. If you want to get my links and all the stuff that I recommend, like the EBFC Show podcast, the Easier Better for Construction podcast, you can just Google Felipe Engineer. It'll be the top hit on the website, ebfcshow.com. There are all the links to the shows, the live streams that we do. Um, the YouTube channel, social media, all the places you can consume. The podcast is audio and video, or you can go to thefelipe.bio.link and get uh, links to my book or go to constructionscrum.com and get all the freebies on that book to get started with Scrum today on your jobs. We want to start experimenting. I want to encourage everybody to experiment away. And if you message me on any social media through direct message, I will absolutely reply and respond as Jake knows, and we will dance. And I can't wait to see what kind of comments and feedbacks you have for me on this quality podcast. Thank you, John and Jake. You guys have been awesome hosts, some better dressed than others, and some more interrogatory than others jake you know who you are (laughs) you know i i want to be more gangster that's the whole brand when i post a meme on linkedin it is not safe oh this looks nice it's it's here's my metaphorical middle finger deal with it (laughs) well felipe thank you for coming on we will put all of the links down below in the show for everybody out there in youtube land thanks for joining us goodbye